Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Lenka is not one to shy away from big changes. After spending over a decade earning a PhD in neuroscience, Lenka decided to pursue a career centered around a love of food. And this wasn't the first time Lenka just calmly made a big change. After high school, Lenka left her home country of Germany for Barcelona just to try something new and maybe to enjoy living near beaches for once. 17 years later, she still resides in Spain with her partner and two children. As easily as Lenka makes big life decisions, she struggles with the little decisions, like the perfect place to eat on a day off. That's how, after a neuroscience conference in Florence, Lenka, who was a vegetarian at the time, accidentally found herself with a friend in a little restaurant that served only intestines. So she chose the one dish on the menu that was vegetarian. And today, she's sharing that recipe with us, not only because it is delicious, but also because it's sort of an intersection point between these three themes in her life, travel, neuroscience, and food. First of all, congratulations on that. Thank you. That's an incredible accomplishment that really such a small percentage of people achieve. Yeah, it, <laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> well, and it sounds like you didn't just achieve it because, of course, I did some Googling and I just I read it says after the defense and a thoughtful discussion given by the candidate. Now, Dr. Lenka Selinger, that's you. And the panel members, the thesis was given the highest grade at our university. So this is not food related at all. And I absolutely want to talk about the transition to food. But you spent a lot of your life on this. I And it sounded very interesting, the topic. I want to know more about it. Yeah, it is very interesting. So it, it's a PhD in neuroscience, which is about discovering how the brain works, basically. And then my research was about how... Well, about auditory processing and about how different things can, can affect auditory processing. Like I did one study about the presence of emotional stimuli can affect auditory processing at very early stages. So mm -hmm. I worked with electrodes attached to the head, which allows you to see like at the very, at the milli, millisecond level what happens in the brain. Wow. You saw, you could see live what was happening, I guess this sounds like in a child's mm, brain. Yeah, no, not really. You can't really see it live. When you do it live, you okay. see the EEG happening, like you see all the brain waves, but then you have to analyze it and, and do like an, an average of many, many, many trials. Oh, okay. So you can't the result, see results live, but you can see the brain waves live. So that's exciting, yes. And what did you end up concluding? that at the first 100 milliseconds, there's a difference in the auditory processing, like it gets increased, there's an increased brain response to a neutral auditory stimulus in the presence of fearful faces as compared to neutral faces. Hmm? So in other words, you can't process what you're saying when you're afraid. Uh, no, rather like that's interpreting, but more like a survival instinct. Like when there's some, something negative, some, like a fearful face, faces are very strong stimulus to us humans. So when there's something like a fearful face, you are like your senses are more open somehow. So you intensify the general sensory processing and maybe you allocate attentional resources to everything that's happening in your environment. 
I see. So more the opposite of what I said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe more the opposite, actually. Although also at a very early early level, like language processing would be would take a little more time. I see. So you're saying like you would be very alert thing, but to actually mm-hmm. process the language still may take a little longer. Exactly. I think you said, did you say you worked mostly with children or with adults as well? Or? No, on, I only worked with adults. In my group, there were other people working with children too, but I only worked with adults. Okay. Okay. So what are the practical implications? How would people use? Yeah, um, there are no direct practical um, conclusions to draw from this study. It's more basic mm-hmm. research I did really to to understand how the brain works. And then the funny thing is there are always some applications. It's just in the moment of investigating it, you sometimes don't know what that will be. Have applications like arisen at this point or because you left that behind, they haven't quite arisen <laughs> ever because you turned to food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know any really practical, you, like you could think of some things like, like how your sensory processing might be affected when your boss looks angrily at you or if you're in a threatening environment or, but it's, it's not as direct. You wouldn't need more research really. Yeah. Well, once again, congratulations. Thank you. I know you've switched paths and I'm so curious to hear more about that. But no matter where you go or what you do, that's one of those things. No one could ever take it away from you. You'll always be a PhD. And I was proud to finish that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So finishing, let's talk about that. How long of a journey did that bring to completion? How long were you in the field and how long were you working on your PhD? Yeah. Yeah. So I I studied psychology. Mm-hmm. for there was four or five years I think I took a semester I went to Chile for one semester to study abroad and then I took another semester of holidays and traveled through Peru and then I went back and I think on the whole it was five years that mm. I studied psychology and then I did um, two years master in neuroscience and then four more years of PhD okay so four or five plus two gets you to six or seven plus four more you're yeah, at about so around 10 or 11, 11 years yeah <laughs> You really grew up in the field of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I started psychology with the idea of being a therapist, but then it turned around some somewhere in the middle. Mm, you went more towards the hard science route. Yeah. That's interesting because I don't sense that people tend to go that direction. Yeah, I got very fascinated by the biological part and of the way our brains work and how much there's still to discover. What is your home country? What does that actually mean to you? Yes, I'm from Germany. I grew up in in Germany. Hmm. And then when I finished high school, I felt I wanted to go somewhere abroad and learn a new language. And then I was thinking about maybe a sunnier place, maybe somewhere with a beach. And like I was very open to going practically anywhere and doing anything. And then it Mm -hmm. turned out that a friend had worked as an au pair in Mm -hmm. Barcelona and that they were looking for a new girl. So I contacted the woman, Barcelona. I had never been there, but there it's sunnier. There's a beach. So that sounded good. (laughs) (laughs) No beaches in Germany. Are there beaches? Well, yeah, there are in the north. Okay. Oh, I'm I'm from Berlin and yeah, no, 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 none of those in, in Berlin, close to Berlin. No. Okay. 
So uh, I contacted the woman and 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 I went to I came to Barcelona. We we agreed on five months mm -hmm. as an au pair for her three year old daughter. <clears throat> and I lived with this family for five months, and then I decided to stay a little bit longer. <laughs> and this little bit longer has turned somehow into almost half of my life now, and it's been 17 years, I think, this year. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So when you went to university and studied psychology, was that in Spain? It was in Spain, exactly. I, I first, when I left the au pair job, I worked as a waitress for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I was learning the language and then I wanted to start studying and I studied to start, I started to study it here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, I'm always interested with how freely people travel throughout Europe. Was that your childhood growing up? Yeah. Traveling was always a normal part. Like with the, my parents are separated and with my mm -hmm. dad, we usually went to the North of Germany, to the beaches. We were more kids at that part of the family so we were four and there wasn't any money to go very far abroad mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but with my mom we used to go to france italy spain uh to northern europe too well with my dad we went to poland too and once we went to italy yes yes it was a normal part mm -hmm. to travel on holidays so just as i try to make sense of this you know massive life shift from neuroscience to food and food photography, I guess I'm just trying to understand, you know, when this love for food was sparked in you, was it there all along? So was, and when you traveled, was food and eating a big part of that? As a child, how was that as a child? Like we, when we went camping, it was uh, all about doing just anything, I think, in the camper van. Mm -hmm. And with my mom, she was very much into seafood and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so she was always looking for seafood places when we, when we went somewhere close to the sea. Mm. And I didn't like that very much. I don't remember mm -hmm. so much about the food traveling. Like mm -hmm. when we were going to Italy, there was an easy place, I think, to go with kids because all the pasta and pizza is that's something good. <laughs> yeah. So not so much as a kid. Now, when you got to Barcelona... Um, again, because you had traveled, you know, fairly extensively. Did Barcelona feel like a foreign country? Did it feel um, kind of part of this European uh, culture that you had already imbibed a little bit? What was that like? Yeah, it's it's close. It was, but it was different because I was going to live here. So that's that's a huge mm -hmm. difference. And I didn't speak any Spanish when I came here or Catalan. Mm. And so that was a difficult part, like to really learn the language and get to know, yeah, the people, the culture. Mm -hmm. It's different. Mm -hmm. It is very different. Uh, Germany and Spain. Yeah, yeah, it is very different. <laughs> what would you say are some of the differences? It's hotter here, so life is more oriented to be outside. Huh. So the flats are smaller and darker in general mm. because it's not, yeah, it's like people go out and, and do their social life on the streets. And in mm. Germany, the flats are bigger and there's more light in general. You can find everything at the two places, but still you can see the difference. So that's people is, yeah, that's, there was one difference and then 
in Germany, like the way you say hello, it's it's much less contact than in Spain. People kiss each other mm -hmm. on the cheeks, and it's yeah more more physical contact. Mm -hmm. The times of getting up and the, the shops opening and everything is very different too. So in Germany, usually shops open at around seven maybe in the morning, and here almost nothing before nine or ten. Yeah. And then sometimes think things everything closes between two and five, and then everything mm. is open longer. So dinner is much later. So mm. that's different too. Mm -hmm. Well, it was interesting when you said that. You said it was oriented so much more outside because yeah. it's so much warmer in Spain. Do you feel like that? Um, I, I don't know if it's a chicken or egg thing, but would you say that the fact that people are outside, like you said, calls it to be a more social culture? Or do you think it's a, a little bit of the other way around? It's a more social culture. And then you do go outside more just to be with people. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a very good question. Huh. Like if I think about other countries, I think people are more outgoing in the warmer countries. Like when they do more, more life outside, right? Mm -hmm. So I would think maybe that's a general thing. Yes. That is really interesting. I've, of course, people make distinctions, yeah, between cultures that are more personal and more just friendlier, mm. really. <laughs> I guess I've never thought about it that way, that maybe part of that is, yeah, life is just oriented outside. And if you're outside, you can't help it. It's true. If we go for a walk in the evening, I mean, we can't come back in under 90 minutes. All the neighbors are out there and we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the winter, we go months without seeing our neighbors, you know? So yeah. that's a really interesting... Yeah, and here that doesn't happen because you can always have a... If the sun is out, you can have a coffee outside, even in winter. In that's... Germany, that doesn't happen. And where you are, I guess, neither. <laughs> no, no, no. I live near right near D.C. I'm about 45 yeah. minutes north of D.C. Yeah, in the winter, I mean, you're waving at each other as you get in and mm. out of your car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then when you got to Spain, um, did this love for food kind of begin to awaken then or did that still come later? I think that was actually a little earlier, but then it's like, yeah, it's very gradual, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I think it yeah. started earlier. I think I started to enjoy experimenting cooking before I moved out of my parents' home at 18. So 17 or 18 like one year before I, I left to Spain and I think maybe that was important too to start living at my own place and doing all my food for myself okay maybe that's where it's well I always and I remember like my brother actually had this little like for dolls but it was electrical mm -hmm. like an oven and it really worked mm -hmm. and I used it all the time when I was six maybe and I baked little muffins and I made soups and yeah, so and it's a it's an easy bake oven, right? It's yeah. called an easy bake oven. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I desperately wanted one of those as a kid. <laughs> so then it almost sounds like it was something that was innate. It was always inside of you. And whenever the opportunity presented itself for you to express yourself through cooking or baking you grab that opportunity. There just weren't yeah, so it, many of them as a child. Yeah, I did always like it. I remember my my grandma, she was a master of the kitchen. She They had a, a farm oh. and there were always so many people and she used and she was training. She was always training somebody to learn how to 
how to have a whole household, how to care for people, how to work in the garden, how to cook. She was very strict, actually. I found it hard to be with her sometimes, but mm. but she knew how everything had to be done and she was teaching it to us. Mm. What are some of the and things? she was what, a good cook. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> First of all, I come from a German family. My dad's side is very German. Yes, okay. my my dad's side is very German and my mom's side is a lot more Irish. And yes, my dad's side can be <laughs> we talk about the hate can be it's 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 a lot. Like there's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. The trains always run on time in Germany, right? <laughs> That's what yeah. Which is my, not true actually, totally yeah. not true. <laughs> That's funny. I've, well, how many people would she cook for? Uh it varied in the end less, but like when she was younger, I think there were maybe 12 people around the table usually, something like that. Three meals because a day. Were, hmm, f- hmm, f- like more four, four meals a day. Four meals because a day. Because there was cake and coffee too wow. in the afternoon. So that's 48 meals that she served every day. Yeah. Lots of meals. Wow. Exactly. And it was like they were very conscious about healthy eating and they had their garden and many of the produce came from the garden. And I remember once they visited me in Barcelona and and we bought some blueberries and some raspberries at the supermarket. And she was like impressed. She said, oh, it's, it's so easy. You don't have to go out and pick them all <laughs> and wow. pick them all. You, you, you can also buy them. Well, she knows she does it now sometimes, but still yeah. with some things I think she she doesn't. Some things just come from the garden. Wow. So what are some of the things you feel you learned from her? Um, I think some things about organization, like you start with a clean kitchen and you clean everything up while you go. And to some of the care she put into everything and the perfectionism. Well, well, I don't know if if I really got that because I'm much about improvising and I never (laughs) measure anything. And actually, she told me once that she was a little envious of me because she always follows recipes. Yeah. So I learned that from her maybe, but then I, I started to fly. <laughs> yes. Huh. But I remember help, helping her out at a party once and, and I, she was, I was maybe um, 20 or so and she was like an old lady already and, mm-hmm. and she was sending me around all the time and she would, she would run and I told her, no, I will do it. I will do it for you. And I, I was so tired in the end because she was, she wanted everything to be perfect. And so she's, yeah. her way of being is running away all days. Everything would be perfect for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised by the energy she, she had to have for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To do that. So, yeah. Did she have never, any? Never stop. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's kind of like a marathon. The more you train, the stronger you get. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. her, it was always like the work is finished when it's done. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, like a very, I think, mom, my grandpa even more maybe, but together they, like the concept of fun, I think they hasn't been really present in their lives. Like work was a lot of their of their lives. Mm-hmm. And I would say that is very stereotypically German. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> Hard, hardworking and humorless, I had a teacher say once. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm offended. <laughs> um. <laughs> they can be, yes, these Germans. <laughs> that was another reason to leave Germany, actually, too many Germans. <laughs> 
that's funny. Did your grandmother have a signature dish that you remember? I mean, I'm sure she had many. One of my favorites was like a milk rice, like rice pudding with strawberry sauce. And it was oh, wow. with strawberries from her garden. And the, it was not just the rice pudding, but then she would whip up some cream and mix it with cream once it was cooled down. So oh. it made for a very rich rice pudding, which was very different to the one we used to have at home. And that was one of my favorite dishes when I, when I went to her place. Yeah, fresh strawberries mixed with cream. That sounds mm. magical. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, like you said, everything, there was a right way, there was a wrong way. I, I, I'm really struck by what you said that you're finished when the work is done. Mm -hmm. So when you got to Spain, I'm guessing that there was a very different mindset. Oh, yeah, that's speaking. true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when is the work be... finished in Spain? When is the day finished in Spain? <laughs> it's Spanish people actually work like 300 hours average more than other European in other European countries. But but it's actually but they are 30 percent less efficient. So in huh. Spain, people go to work to show their faces, to show <laughs> that they're there, but then they don't work a lot. <laughs> And it's very typical, for example, to go for lunch and you, well, you go somewhere for lunch and then you have a first dish and you have a second dish and then you have coffee and you talk. And then after a couple of hours, you go back to work, yeah. <laughs> which is very different than, yeah, just like having your sandwich sitting at the computer. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm wondering how that translated for you as a... As a PhD candidate, you know, I know here, um, you know, of course, PhD candidates are very driven by nature. And of course, that's the um, that's what you're signing up for. And the PhD candidates that I know, I would say, are usually borderline in despair, you know, over the number yeah. of hours they're working. They kind of never see the light of day. They barely sleep, you know. So for you, um, how was it pursuing a PhD in Spain, especially with the background of a, mm -hmm. you know, a German education. Did that ever feel frustrating or did it feel freeing? Or is the, is academia just a different, uh, a different place altogether? Uh, it, I think it felt more freeing in general. Sometimes mm -hmm. like a part of, of my group used to go to have lunch at the cafeteria and, and I sometimes went with them, but sometimes it despaired me a little because it took so much time. Mm -hmm. But in general, it was a university was a friendly place. So my mm -hmm. boss would always have a sandwich or, or whatever at his desk, for example. Mm -hmm. And I would in busy times do that. But then I would find a compromise. And we had a large table at the department where we would gather at midday to have lunch. And then mm -hmm. didn't take so I would bring my food and then just heat it up there and eat it there and talk a little to my to the other people around and then go back to work. And that was like a good compromise to me, not having to go out to the cafeteria and wait yeah. for food. And and I also, I didn't want to, to spend so much money on food that wasn't yeah. so good. So I prefer to bring my own food yeah. and just have it there. But I like to, usually when I had a little time, I like to have it there with around other people and to chat a little bit and then go back to work. But you were still inside. Yes. <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't have to talk to every person who walked past you. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
That's so interesting. It is so true about efficiency. So much part of it is not putting yourself in the place where you're going to get distracted all the mm-hmm. time. That is so true. <laughs> yeah. So then back to this development of your love for food, it sounds like it was always there. How mm-hmm. about when you got to Sp- Spain? Would you say that that did that propel your love a little bit more or were you so yeah. busy? No, no, it because actually in the first two years I was just working. I was after high school I was I didn't want to That's want right. to start studying immediately. So That's it right. felt yeah. very freeing to be in Spain at first because I was just well the parent was different because I was living with the family, but then as a waitress I could leave work where, where it was and then I, I had lots of free time actually to read whatever I wanted to and to go out and to meet people and yeah, it was a nice time of my life. Mm. And there, yeah, I started to to eat seafood, actually, because here's, there's so much more good seafood. So at some point, I, I did like a conscious thing. I, I just decided I'd like it from now on, and it kind of worked. Really? <laughs> and I started I, to like red wine and other different that's things. That's amazing. I've heard, well, first of all, your seafood photographs are some of my favorite photographs. Oh, so <laughs> they are. Uh, that's so interesting to me that you just made a decision to love it. I mean, I would have thought that you, well, I guess you do. I would have said you love seafood just taking a scroll through your accounts, your Instagram accounts. I've heard of people doing that with vegetables, slowly ah. introducing a little bit at a time, but I have never heard of anyone doing that with seafood. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I had always like hated even the smell and then I decided I'd like it from now on and I started little by little and then I started love. Yeah. I started loving it. Now I like it all. <laughs> That's so deep. Now, why did you choose that just because it's so abundant there or for health reasons? Why did you kind of force yourself into that? I think because it's more abundant, more present here. I wanted to, wanted to try that part of, of food mm. and be able to enjoy it. Oh, I just love knowing that. As you were getting your PhD, like I said, we're kind of working our way up to this recipe. Did you travel a lot? For my PhD? Yeah. At the end, more than I wanted to. Mm. That's not really true because I, yeah, I was sent to some beautiful places I wouldn't have been able to go to if not. I went to a Congress to Australia, for example, which was amazing. And I went to New Orleans for another Congress. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I also traveled in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Did you well, like New Orleans? Part. Oh, I loved it. I, I then swing. So it was amazing to be there and to be able to go to the see all the live jazz music and, and dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I met a very nice guy who, who, who was also a swing dancer. And then he showed me the city all over and he invited me to his place and he gave me a bike. People were so, so, so friendly. What an amazing story. I like, loved yeah. it there. Yeah, and it's well, a beautiful well, city it with is all the colored beautiful. houses, and wow, it was impressive. It is beautiful. And did you eat? Did you eat there? Uh, not that much, actually, because I was on a very low budget, so I tried yeah. to just buy things and prepare my own meals. But I did try some. How was it called? The j- jambalaya or something like jambalaya. that? Jambalaya. Uh-huh. Jambalaya. Yes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> also some like famous sandwich. Oh, a, a, a po' boy? A crop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I tried that too. Mm-hmm. I think that, is it like a sweet kind of bread a little? Oh, a I beignet? Uh, no, no, no. I, I tried those too. Those were pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
a sweet kind of bread. I don't know. I'm sure I should know. Somebody will contact me after yeah. the episode and tell me. Oh, that's so great. Okay. So you did. Now, as you traveled, did you feel the love for food growing or is that something that more comes out of you? You have to actually, it's, it's, it's making it that you love maybe more so even than the eating and trying it. Like, I don't remember if, if it always has been like this, but I do like, I, I very much look for food and I, it's like a big part of traveling for me. It is like to choose the right places and to try the local food and to live enjoyable experiences around food. Like mm-hmm. I never stopped thinking about food. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. So then this, this is perfect. Tell me about this dish that you shared with me and, and the listeners. Yeah. So there was at a conference in Florence, which is a beautiful city in Italy. So a very nice place to travel to. And I have a friend who has been living in Italy for many, many years, almost as long as I've been living in Barcelona. And she was living in Bologna at that time. She still is. And that's actually very close to Florence. So she told me that she could come over to Florence to see me there. And she came and I had a free day and she came and we went walking around the city. And at some point we got hungry and we got a little tired. But of course, we wanted to find the perfect place to have lunch, not just any place. (laughs) Because the big life decisions, they're not so difficult for me. I usually, it's like this, and then I go for it. But with things like finding the perfect place to have lunch, I I can be terrible. (laughs) I mean, if you had to be good at one or the other, it's better to be good at the big life decisions, I guess. I guess so, yeah. (laughs) I comfort myself like this, at least. Yeah, I can drive my partner crazy <laughs> because oh. he's like, well, whatever, the first place. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and I can, well, be walking around for for three hours before I, I decide on one. And, and I'm always thinking, still thinking, is it is it really the right place? Is it? So oh, with her, she, she also wanted to find the perfect place. And we started to to ask some people to, to get their recommendations. And in the end, we came out walking at a beautiful place like a plaza and it it looked like the there was a restaurant in the corner and it looked like the perfect place there was a table in the in the window in the open window and where you could like watch everything outside and somebody was sitting there when we thought well we'll wait we we want to have our lunch at this perfect table we found the perfect spot there Mm -hmm. so we waited for a bit and eventually the table uh, the people left from this table and it was free and we went inside and sat down tired and happily and we got the menus <laughs> to order and we started looking at them and my friend she had been living in Italy for a long time so her Italian was pretty perfect mine was mm. not with Spanish you can understand some things but I, I don't speak Italian so she was looking at the menu and I was asking her about what's that and what's that and what's that and with some there were some names she was telling me well, this is like stomach something and this is and then whether there were mm-hmm. things that even she with her perfect Italian didn't know. So we asked the waiter and it turned out that everything was like inner pieces of, of animals. Oh. With... <laughs> and she didn't like that. And I was a vegetarian, I think at the time, or I wanted a vegetarian dish. And, and in the end, 
Ah, and then the waiter was telling us, but you're at a triperia, which is like a place to eat the insides of, how do you call this, the insides of animals in English? Yeah, intestines. Uh-huh. The intestines. It's like oh, in, oh, the yeah. in, not just the intestines, but maybe even like the liver or the heart, like yeah, all of the oh, so. organs, oh. the organs, organ meat. Yeah, triperia, I think, is intestines. So basically oh. maybe intestines or maybe other organs. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> We weren't looking for that. And in the end, I ordered the the only vegetarian dish there was, which was the recipe I gave you, the parmigiana la tuca gialla. Mm. And she ordered something with the only dish with meat that wasn't intestines. And and then I, I got it and it was this, uh, maybe you know the eggplant parmigiana? Mm-hmm. It's like a typical Italian dish, right? And this is like this eggplant parmigiana, but with butternut pumpkin. Mm. And it was not like the usual tray of parmigiana, which you would expect. They had, they had um, plated it like in with a round with mm-hmm. layers of butternut pumpkin. Mm. And there was cheese in between and there was tomato sauce and it was pretty good. Mm. And I immediately thought, I think I had started my food blog at that time. And I immediately thought I have to recreate this dish at home and I have to make it even better. Mm. But I really liked how it was presented and it, and it was really good. And at the yes. end, we had our perfect lunch. <laughs> yeah. The well, there you spot. go. <laughs> at Even at a very place. Right, right. The perfect lunch at an imperfect place. So Exactly. <laughs> yes. Good for you for that. Good for you. Um, mm-hmm. So like I mentioned, I got a little frazzled and turned around this week. So I, I haven't made the recipe, but it does look beautiful and sound delicious and highly nutritious. Yeah, it's and it's actually also easy to make. It sounds like a lot of steps. It's even easier if you do some parts. I sometimes do meal prepping and then I do like a big batch of tomato sauce and I grill some vegetables in the oven. And if you do some of it beforehand, it's even easier. But still, if you if you do it all the, at the time, it's it's not too much work and it it's very impressive when you have people over. It it looks very nice mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. very good. Like the combination of of textures and flavors is is a good one. Yes. So I do have some questions about it. And of course, these are in advance of making it, which is a shame because I always, you know, it's it's by the doing it that you figure out what you don't know, you know. But um, when it comes to butternut squash, I always bake it before I use it because peeling and cutting butternut squash is just a nightmare to me. So do you have any tips on that? I usually peel it with a vegetable peeler and mm-hmm. find it works out quite okay. I I get your point. <laughs> I still don't <laughs> like to do it either. <laughs> but, it, well, usually with a peeler, it, it goes like swoo, 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 and it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get down in that little crevice, like where the neck comes down before it opens back up again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just be generous and cut it out. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And then slicing it, you just use a very sharp knife and some elbow grease. Uh, yeah, some strength it works okay. It's yeah. not so hard. Yeah, sharp knife and and then a little pressure. That's true. But okay. put it works okay. Okay, and then when when it comes to presentation, because you stack the slices mm-hmm. and you stack and layer the slices, do you just do smaller ones and larger ones? Yeah, I do. Yeah, some are smaller always. Some are smaller and some are larger. But sometimes with the parts that are very large, I just cut them in half, and then I kind of there's an overlapping part, so it doesn't get too too big. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I see what you mean. 
Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to ask about is, okay, I've never heard of Scarmorza trees. Ah, okay. That's, yeah, that's like, um, it's a smoked cheese. It's an Italian oh, okay. cheese, which you can get here. There's smoked provolone too. Oh, so like that's a, a good option. Provolone. Okay. It's a bit like that. It's like, it comes with, um, there's like, um, like a little thread around it. So it's like, mm -hmm. um, it's like a smoked mozzarella, but it gets harder in the process. Okay. Well, I can absolutely Perma. see how that smoky flavor would really complement the butternut squash so well. This is yeah. a very autumnal dish. Like this feels like fall and autumn to me. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so speaking of which, tell me about the pumpkin butter. That So now we're moving into the ways that you improved it, right? Right. So yeah, the secret is in, uh, also in making a good tomato sauce. And I like to use the Kalamata olives, which are so fragrant in, and I just love them to, mm -hmm. to put inside. And then the the pumpkin butter, I haven't always used that when I made the recipe again. I think I did it the first couple of times because I had it around anyway. So for the pumpkin seed butter, I just toast pumpkin seeds and then I puree them into, with a food processor into pumpkin butter, mm -hmm. which turns out a beautiful green color. And, and you can form little balls of it and it, it has a really good taste. Mm -hmm. I really mm -hmm. like it a lot. Like also for sandwiches, it's, it's mm -hmm. delicious. You, you can just toast like a huge tray or two trays of, of pumpkin seeds and then you have, yeah. and then you can store it in glasses and then you have it to put on everything. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm. And the fried sage. Oh, I love fried sage. Have you have you tried that? No. And the only other time I've heard about it actually is from a guest I had on last Thanksgiving. She was an American who lived in Italy. So she spent she actually lived in Bologna, where your friend is mm -hmm. from. And yeah, she yeah. was telling us about her favorite dishes there. And she talked about this fried sage. And it had it left such an imprint in my mind that I want to try this. And now here's my chance. So thank you. Yeah, I have we have sage in the garden. So I just go out and get it. And then I fry it with you can use butter or you can use olive oil. You can use a mixture of, of butter and olive oil and fry it until it's really crispy. And it's it's so fragrant and it's oh, it's I could never get enough of it. <laughs> and what a gorgeous color combination, butternut squash and that sage green mm -hmm. it really satisfies you as a photographer doesn't it yeah, it does mm, it'll be so beautiful i'm looking so much forward to see your pictures and hear if you liked it oh well let's talk about that this is the really amazing part so you earned your phd and again that's not something someone does lightly it took 11 years of work and you just mm -hmm. completed that in 2016 right yeah that was between my two kids. <laughs> between your two kids. I had it. my first when I was doing my PhD and I was pregnant with my second when I defended my thesis. Incredible. Okay. So a lot of changes because now you're a mother of two. Yep. And am I correct that this is not just a side gig for you? You have completely left the world of neuroscience behind? Yeah, that's true. Tell me about that decision and about how you forged this path. 
Yep. So I was seeing already that the academic career is is really hard. It's really sacrificed. So if I wanted to get the stable position here in Spain, I would have to go abroad now to do a, a postdoc somewhere somewhere abroad because that's like a requisite of of getting some something stable f- further on. Like you have to have been abroad for a couple of years at least, or maybe the minimum requirement is only six months. But it's it's like a good thing if you have been abroad. And that sounds difficult to me, like with my family here and I'm I'm happy here. I I don't want to go abroad for a couple of years Mm -hmm. now. And your partner, I take it he's Spanish? uh, He's Argentinian. He's Argentinian. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if it would be like uprooting him from his home, but no, that wouldn't be so much being a factor. No. No, that wouldn't be a factor, but still, I don't know if he could mm, travel two years to, to a different place, like he has his job here now. Maybe he could. He's a researcher, actually. He's a okay. physicist. Oh, okay. Is that how you but, met? Uh, no, we met cycling. Oh, really? Oh, no, <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. you are just so, there's so much to discover. There's so many layers to Lenka. I love it. Okay. Lenka, oh, yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, with him, we, we crossed on, the, on our ways to work. We crossed, we crossed each other on the bike like two times on, on a day and then we started chatting and that's how everything started with him. <laughs> yeah. See, so yeah, so you just started to see this was going to mean a level of yeah, sacrifice that exactly. you were not prepared and to it make. Would have, yeah, it would have been like working 50 hours a week for 10 years to maybe, maybe if I was lucky, get something good and to always excel, to always be publishing, to always be very good at what I was doing. And it, like for him, it's, it's, vocational it's totally totally vocational and i i still find neuroscience so interesting but there were always so many other things i found interesting too mm. and like the creative part i was missing that a bit what you just said for him it's vocational so to you it was interesting you were happy to spend 11 years there but when you say vocational you're almost drawing this distinction as it's like a calling to him it's yeah. like there's almost something sacred about it when i hear mm. the word vocation yeah. And you're drawing a distinction between that and simply something that's interesting to you. Exactly. That is so fascinating. I need to think about that for a while. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was with everything I have into that. Yeah. You've really given me a new thought here. So <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. And, and thank you. <laughs> And I had started my my food blog some somewhere in between. Like I was always thinking about food and cooking a lot and experimenting. And it was actually him who suggested that I started a food blog also to have kind of a, have my recipes written down because I was always improvising and I never measured and I that I would do something delicious and I couldn't do it again. So he told me, maybe you just write everything down and you can share it with other people. And then you can also cook your recipes again if they're good. Right. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And that was actually when I got my first camera too, because from the beginning on, I knew that I wanted the pictures to be a visual invitation to try the recipe. That was always important to me. So so I bought a camera and I started taking pictures of the, of my recipes when I started the, the food blog. Okay. And... Then what happened? Because you went from these images in the post you shared with me, which 
I think we can agree are very amateur. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, you are teaching workshops and your students are lucky to have you because your work is gorgeous and very oh, evocative, so much, I feel. I, I mean, I really do love your account, Linka, and I've been inspired by it many, many, many times, especially the seafood photos. <laughs> Those deep, deep red shrimp. Oh, it's incredible. Wow. Yeah, those were amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't try them, actually, because it was for a client, but uh, they <laughs> looked amazing. <laughs> so I want to know both, both how you developed your photography skills and then also how you built a business in parallel. Yeah. So, yeah, I was trying to get better in my food photography from the beginning on. Of course, it's not instantaneous. Of course, there were lots of experimenting and of studying everything there was. And there wasn't so much in the beginning, nothing to do with, with what there is now. This was in 2013. And there wasn't so much information about food photography. It was not yeah. so easy to learn so much. So I started yeah, to read everything I could and to experiment. And there were these pictures where I thought, wow, those look great. And now I look at them and I feel embarrassed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, we all have and that. In our, yep. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there were others where I was seeing like something has to get better here, but I wasn't sure. And so yeah. it was just lots of yeah, trying out different things and getting inspired by other people, training my eyes, well, my brain to, to see more in pictures too, right? I think that's a very important part of improving your photography, like learning to look at pictures in a different way and to really pay attention to all the details and to where the light comes from and to which colors are used and how the elements are arranged. I agree completely. And I have, well, not now that I've been hacked because I lost it all, which is one of the hardest Whoa. parts. But my inspiration collection was actually one of the toughest things to lose because I would go through it all the time. And, you know, when a image like affect you emotionally, like like yeah. yours affect me often, I would just save it. And then I look and I say, what is different about that than what I do? You know, mm -hmm. I think if an image is good in the way that I'm good, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, I know how they did it. But it's when something is different, you say, okay, how did they do that? And I spend a long time studying photos. I think that's actually the best way to improve. And then the next time you shoot, do it. <laughs> yeah. It's as simple as exactly. that. Do it. And because you are who you are, it will end up having your own spin on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but even I, as an exercise, it's good. sometimes it's good to just like try out some elements that they use and sometimes it's good to even like reproduce the picture as, as well as you can in the same way and, and just use it as an exercise and then not say it's yours totally well I but agree with you I agree with you and then I think what happens is you end up you know at some point your brain just integrates these things then at some yes. point becomes unconscious you don't even realize so now when someone asks me why I'm doing something I almost have to deconstruct it now. I have to yes. remember what I learned that has become second nature. Yes, I totally agree. The same thing happened to me. And I remember the stage where I was, it felt so frustrating because sometimes I would arrange things and it just wouldn't flow and it yeah. wouldn't look the way I wanted it to and it wouldn't express anything. And then I really started to study composition and I used the compositional techniques and things started to look better and I would think about them all the time. And now I almost never do. Mm -hmm, so it's mm -hmm. really like integrating this information and it's, it becomes intuitive with time. I totally agree. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
Mm. And how about building a business? How did you get, how did you do that? So, so I had started my food blog and I actually, when it started to get attract some more attention and I started to get different kinds of requests after a couple of years, I stopped doing it because I got pregnant and I got so nauseous that I couldn't look at food anymore. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even open the fridge. It was terrible. So I didn't feel the energy to, for anything actually. (laughs) And I stopped doing the food blog. But it was always something that I, when I looked through it and I looked at the pictures and I started to read the stories, I felt so much love for and something I really wanted to to go back to. And I did go back to my food blog when my second son was six months old. Mm-hmm. So I took it up again and I started to do it both in Spanish, the new recipes and, and in English. And I really started to get more serious about the photography part and, and with with the years in between, like so many more information was around the internet mm-hmm. and I started to really study it and to read some photography books, to read about light, to start experimenting with different elements mm-hmm. and to yeah, just experiment a lot and put a lot of energy into that. And my interest kind of shifted from the recipe development more to the food photography part. Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering... I had decided I didn't want to to be a neuroscientist and I was still wondering what I would do. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking maybe doing psychotherapy again, like learning, mm-hmm. like doing some more education, mm-hmm. which I think still think would be interesting. But I also felt like I've been educating myself for 10 or more years and I maybe it's not the time now to mm. to go back to school somehow. Mm-hmm. And then this photography, like uh, this was really where all my heart was, but I, mm-hmm. in the beginning it felt too scary to to allow myself to, to try it out as a business. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I kind of gave myself permission to just try it out mm-hmm. and to go for it and see where it would take me. And that felt very liberating to, mm-hmm. to allow myself to really go into it. Mm-hmm. And And there I started to contact at first I contacted a restaurant and it was very randomly and at they started to follow me at Instagram and I thought they were close to you and I had never been there actually and I just asked them if I could go there and and do some photos for them for free mm-hmm. and they told me yes and that was uh, the first time I I did photos for for someone and they liked my work and I did some more photos for them and they had a different place. I was lucky it was a restaurant group. I didn't know that before. Mm. <laughs> and then for the third restaurant, they wanted to start to pay me. So they started to ask what my prices were and that's how everything started. Mm-hmm. And now do you and find that you mostly have to reach out for new work or does it mostly come word of mouth? I think I, I should really reach out more. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes to me mm-hmm. like a combination of both really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, of course, I have to. I had to like all the world of marketing and business at university is very, very far. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. like and it comes more of... naturally for some personalities mm-hmm. than others. Yeah, and for me, it actually doesn't come very naturally. And but it's also I like challenges too. So so I've been learning a lot. I've been through some processes of. Like at the beginning, I felt like, oh, somebody could pay me something for for, for something I actually love to do mm. and underprice my my work 
and mm -hmm. feel like everything I would ask for would be too much and people would be shocked at everything, every number they could see. Mm -hmm. And now, luckily, I'm at a different place and I think I have to learn, I have learned to, to value my work. I've also gotten more confidence with my photography mm. and to, yes, be able mm -hmm. to communicate differently. So two questions about that, two follow-up questions. One, you say at some point you gave yourself permission. Mm -hmm. Was that a gradual thing? Was it a decision like you decided to like seafood or was there kind of this moment? Was there someone else who gave you this permission? Do you remember anything about how that happened? I I think the process was kind of gradual. So I mm -hmm. would start, start to to spend so much time around food photography and all my heart was going for it but then the giving me permission was like a moment maybe hmm. it was it was in my head for a long time but I felt it like yeah it was like a moment it was a, mm -hmm. but I remember feeling it as something really freeing mm -hmm. and then you started to chase that feeling of being free yes yeah mm -hmm. and to just fully go for it and put all my energy there mm-hmm Mm -hmm. And how about likewise getting past this feeling of you being privileged for someone to pay you to them being privileged to have you as their photographer? Yes. <laughs> <How> did, <laughs> I don't know if you've completely achieved that switch, but how did you, how did that process happen? Uh, I think through some part reading books and some part I did a mentoring too. Mm. with Rachel Koronek mm -hmm. about the business part of food photography, which was very helpful, like in finding prices and determining what they should be and running the numbers and then like, yeah, and, and mindset things, mm -hmm. like changing, changing my beliefs around um, food photography, my food photography business. Yeah. Was that a one-on-one -on -one mentoring or was it a class? It was a class. Mm -hmm. Like we were, but a reduced class, maybe, I don't know if we were, maybe 20, 20 people maybe. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So would you recommend that? What, well, let me be more open-ended. For someone listening to this who might want to pursue a career in food photography, uh, what would you recommend? What would be your advice? Yeah, that was one of the best things I did. Actually, I would recommend it a lot. That was really, really helpful with me, and I could sleep. I can sleep clearly see like a before and an after, and also made me like more confidently. And it made me because there was somebody looking at what I was doing also. So and like I was looking forward to telling the group that I had reached out to so many people and how it had, how it went. So yeah. it was like pushing me forward to to taking yeah. steps. Yeah, and that was very, very positive. So finding so accountability. Uh huh. Exactly. That's yeah. Exactly what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was. I felt like with my photography, I had, I had already learned so much, and I would always, I will always try to improve and get better, of course. But I had to, to also sell my work, start selling my work, and yeah. and get an income. Yeah. And that was really helpful. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have done other online courses, like not, well, not, where you don't have a direct supervising and you can't ask questions, but more. And some have been helpful, but no, I think this has been the most helpful thing I have done. Okay. Okay. And now you're teaching 
workshops. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about those. Yeah, I've given a couple of live workshops here in Barcelona and that has always been a lot of fun and yes, and I've started to to do online workshops too and and I'm always nervous before organizing everything and then it's it's so easy for me to speak about everything that I have learned in food photography and and it's it's great to see people like enjoying it and getting inspired and taking things from there and but I try to to do my workshops very practically too. So there's the theory part, and then there's a part where where I show at my studio space, I compose a scene and I show them what I use and how I set everything up and how I manipulate lighting. So it's it's only two hours, but it's actually, I, I think it's something I would have enjoyed when I was starting out. Right, right. You feel good about the value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Well, tell everyone where they can find you. Well, at Instagram, at Lenka Slens with a... Yeah, oh, uh, <laughs> underscore, an underscore. With an underscore, Lenka yes. underscore Lens, <laughs> which is also my, my food photography website. I have a food photography blog there too. Okay, and this is where people would sign up for your workshop as well. Exactly, yes. Okay. I, I, I really enjoyed this. I feel like I know you so much better. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you. I feel like I have a new friend. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's so, ni- so nice to finally talk to you. Thank you so and much. Thank Lenka. you so much for inviting me. Oh, I'm honored that you came on. <laughs> so honored. Yes. <laughs> have a great evening. Okay. You too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Lenka. If you think you'd be interested in her workshop, or a free PDF that she recently released about using flash photography to make natural looking food photography, make sure you find her contact information in the show notes at thestoriedrecipe.com episodes. You can also find her recipe for this butternut squash dish that I did eventually make and both my husband and I loved. In fact, I ate leftovers for breakfast the day after I photographed it. This year, I am hoping to create a crowdsourced Thanksgiving episode, which will give our non-American listeners a glimpse into everything this crazy holiday can be. And for us Americans, I'm imagining an episode that we can listen to and relate with and laugh and smile as we prep Thanksgiving dinners that are unfortunately sure to look a little different this year than any other year. So if you're willing to contribute, even if you're not sure what to share yet, I can help you with that. Please email me at becky at thestoriedrecipe.com. This is the first time I've ever tried a crowdsourced episode like this. I don't know if it will work, but I, I really hope it will. And I do believe if we collaborate, we can come up with something really communal and fun and exciting. So again, I'd love to share your story. I need your story please email me at becky at thestoryrecipe.com for more information. And here we are back to Honey. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.